All right. Okay, we are in Genesis chapter 35 today. And uh, uh, last week we uh, uh, we looked at the first uh, seven or so verses of chapter 35 uh, where God tells Jacob to get up from Shechem and go to Bethel. And uh, so we talked about that. And uh, we, I actually was hoping to get through verse 8, but we didn't quite make it that far. So we'll pick up with verse 8 today and hopefully get down through about verse 15 or so. So, uh, uh, but by way of reminder, look down through those first seven verses of, of chapter 8 and uh, see what you remember that we talked about or what you see there that we should have talked about that we didn't talk about. <laughs> and uh, let's just review a little bit first before we go on. Okay. How's that? How did he do that? Yeah, yeah. So that is encouraging. He's he's not he's not been one to show a whole lot of particularly spiritual leadership uh, so far in uh, his uh, family experience. But he but he does it here in this case, and that's encouraging progress in the life of Jacob that he's actually beginning to show some spiritual initiative. What else? Pretty remarkable, isn't it? Boy, I tell you, that's encouraging, isn't it? Because <laughs> uh, after I've blown it like uh, like Jacob does by hanging around Shechem so long, it causes all those problems and and his and his deal with Esau there the first time he went to Bethel and. And yet, God still watches over him and protects him and cares for him. And well, that's encouraging because because uh, I'm always blowing it. And every time I blow it, then I think, well, God's got to be finished with me now. You know, he's you know he's probably probably been the last straw here. But he but he always seems to to uh, have more grace than than uh, than I can imagine. So, what else? Yeah, I, you know, I, 
I see so much of that, and I uh, I see I see it in my own life, and I see it also, like you say, in the church that that somehow we define our spirituality by the things we give up and the things we forsake and the things we leave behind. But if that's if that's the extent of our Christian life, we've really never got out of Shechem. <laughs> you know, God really is calling us on to a greater experience of Himself, and and what He's really what really makes the Christian life the Christian life is not what we have forsaken or what we have left behind or the idols that we have buried. What makes the Christian life the Christian life is our experience at Bethel, our encounter of worship and, and experience of the Lord, and that's what He's uh, that's what He's calling us to. And uh, so we have to go through Shechem. You can't get to Bethel without going through Shechem, but you can't stop at Shechem. You got to go on to Bethel. What else? Anything else? On the other side of that, you, you mentioned the things that we give up, things that are left behind, because that's, that's kind of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, down at that class, I was in, I met a guy who goes to the church of T.D. Jakes. Oh. And I, well, I really wanted to have some conversations with the guy. <laughs> I didn't. But I was thinking, in their church, it would not be the things. I think, I'm, I'm not certain, but I think that in their church, the things that you give up or not the issues is what you get now. Oh, yeah, you've got that yeah. new car. Well, God's yeah. obviously blessing, so. Yeah. You know, yeah. Or you've got that, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, materialism, material possessions show God's blessing. That's equally the same. Yeah. What I was wondering about, uh, we didn't talk about this one part where the uh, Jacob asked them for their, their foreign gods. Put away your foreign gods here, mm-hmm. it says in verse 2, and then in verse 4, they brought their uh, foreign gods and the rings were in their ears. Yeah. And I wondered if that, you know, today that's kind of a, you know, culture stylistic. You know. Well, it's just very clear the Lord's opposed to, to a jewelry, so. Yeah, uh, <laughs> so. I can just say you know, really on the yeah. passage. Yeah. Uh, the earrings were used. Uh, the, the earrings were used uh, as kind of talismans. They were used in, in kind of a, uh, a a superstitious sense to you know inquire and, and to discover spiritual direction and things like that. And so, so in their giving up their earrings, and, and it's interesting he doesn't name the earrings as something they're to give up. And, and I don't know if that's because it's just not mentioned here or if Jacob doesn't mention, but it is interesting they do bring that. It's not enough that they bury the idols, but all these other kind of lesser things that they're really depending on for some kind of spiritual guidance in their life, they're, they're, uh, they're bringing those things as well. So is that kind yeah, of... Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think there's probably some of that too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, little St. Christopher on the dashboard or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting that once they destroy all those, then they go to the next town and they're protected by God. Oh, that is a good point, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Okay, anything else before we go on? Uh, Well, let's pick it up then in uh, verse 8 and read down through verse 15. And... uh, and I want you, as we read this passage, I want you to think about the things that, that we read about here that we've read about before. Okay? I want you to notice the things here that are repeated or done over 
again that, that have happened before. Okay, so he says, uh, picking up verse 8, which I said we were going to look at last week and we didn't quite get there. Now Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alenbacheth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paden Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come forth from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land, in which I, the land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken to it with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Okay? Uh, now, uh, we are going to uh, talk just briefly about, uh, about Deborah, but, uh, but as I mentioned, there are several things in this passage that, uh, that we've encountered before, that have happened before, that are being repeated here. And I want you to look down through those and just kind of tell me, what are the things you see there that we have experienced before? Okay, so there's the, the renaming of Jacob. And uh, that has happened before. Now it happens again. What else? What's one of the most conspicuous things here? He's, actually, we kind of really hit this last week. It's in so much in the passage we looked at here. But. I don't know if this is what you want, but it's almost exactly what you told Abraham. Okay, so you're talking about the covenant promises. Okay, so there's a restatement of the covenant promises. Okay. What else? Kind of the obvious thing I'm talking about. You're probably missing it and looking for the... Well, God appeared to him again. That was... Okay, okay. So there's a, a second appearance uh, to Jacob. Actually, God has spoken to him uh, several times, but... But he's making it clear here. This is a second appearance at Bethel. OK, so there's a second appearance uh, for him to have a second appearance at Bethel. What had to happen? Well, the first appearance, obviously. Well, OK, the first appearance. But what had what had happened with Jacob? This is he had to go back. OK, so there's a return to Bethel. So so we have Jacob's return to Bethel. OK. Now. You're going to have to go back and kind of, you know, refresh your memory on this one because this goes back a number of months in our study of Genesis, okay? But Jacob's return to Bethel in itself is a repetition of what? Okay, Abraham had returned to Bethel. When did Abraham return to Bethel? Do you remember? When did he first go to Bethel? Now, I know your Alzheimer's starting to show up here, folks. Uh, 
Okay, when he first came to Canaan, when he first came to Canaan, we've talked about this, he went to Shechem first, then he went to Bethel, then he went to the Negev, okay? And then after, then after some time in the Negev, where did he go? Uh, well, before that, he went to Egypt. Egypt was what? A disaster, right? And after he came back from Egypt, he went back to the Negev for a while, and then ultimately he returns to Bethel. So we have Abraham's return to Bethel. We have Jacob's return to Bethel. We have the second appearance of God to uh, Jacob at Bethel. We have the renaming of Jacob. We have the restatement of the covenant, but there's still a couple more things in there that we've seen before. Where was it that uh, Abraham was renamed? It wasn't Bethel, was it? No. Uh, yeah, I don't remember where he was at that point, yeah. But there are a couple more things that are real obvious that happen here again that have happened before. Okay, well, I'm including that in this covenant promise part, okay? Okay, uh, Jacob erects a pillar, which is actually distinct from the altar. He's already erected an altar, but now he erects a pillar, okay? And then there's one other thing, at least one other thing that's pretty obvious. He names it Bethel for the second time, right? So it's the renaming of Luz as Bethel. Now that's kind of interesting, you know. We have all these we have all these repetitions, we have all these things that are repeated in this passage, and as we look at the passage today, I'm going to try to explore that a little bit and try and understand why why do all these things happen again? Okay, But before we do that, let's just take a moment and think about verse 8. We have this story about Deborah. Now, she just kind of appears out of the blue here. We had no idea that she was even with Jacob. Uh, she clearly was not with Jacob when he left and went to Padanaram. And he's been gone 20 years. And then he comes back. And then we find him here going to Bethel. And when he gets to Bethel, Deborah is with him. Now, who is Deborah? Excuse me. She's Rebecca's nurse, okay? Now, put your thinking caps on here and think of her a little bit. If she was Rebecca's nurse, how old is she? Older than Rebecca. <laughs> okay. She's older than Rebecca, okay? And when we get to the end of this chapter, we're going to find out that Isaac dies at 180 years, okay? So, Rebecca is, uh, or is, or was uh, Isaac's wife. Uh, and uh, Deborah is old, presumably older than Rebecca. Okay, so uh, so she's obviously 150 or so years old. Okay, but but she is associated with Rebecca, and we don't know how she ends up with Jacob. We really have no clue how she ends up with Jacob. But the presumption on on the part of uh, at least some is that. Obviously, by this time, Rebecca has passed away. Rebecca has died. And so now Deborah is passed on uh, from, uh, from Isaac's household. She's passed on to Jacob's household. And so she apparently has come sometime since Jacob has returned from Paden Aram, sometime in that 10 years that he's, that he's uh, most of that time he spends in Shechem. Uh, apparently, Deborah has come and joined him. Now, what's interesting here is that the scripture even mentions this. Okay. Why does it even mention Deborah? Well, 
Remember last week I told you chapter 35 is kind of a chapter that describes transition in Jacob's life, right? It's a period of it's a period of Jacob moving from one phase or one era era of his life into a new phase or a new era of his life. And for that to happen, certain things have to kind of be shed or or put off or laid aside, okay? So we have four burials in the chapter in chapter 35, right? What were the what are the four burials we have in chapter 35? Okay, first of the foreign gods. Okay, then the second burial is the burial we have here of Deborah, and then uh, of course we haven't gotten there yet. But but what are the third and fourth burials? Rachel passes away, and we'll get to that part of the passage next week. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, Isaac dies, and he's buried. So we have these passings. Uh, in the life of Jacob, these these separations. The first is the separation from the foreign gods. And then it's from these kind of people who represent this past part of Jacob's life when Jacob was Jacob. But now Jacob is becoming Israel. Okay, he's becoming a new man. He's becoming a different person. And and for that to happen, some of the some of the old associations in his life, they just have to fall away. It's not that Jacob has to consciously take some kind of effort to separate himself from these things, but it's just in the process of life, these things are set away, uh, set aside. And and so the significance here of Deborah, uh, as I understand it, and commentators kind of wrestle with this because we don't really, like I say, we don't know how she ended up with Jacob and we, we really have no clue what happens to Rebecca. Okay? Once we have the story of Rebecca's deception of her husband in concert with Jacob, clear back there earlier in the story, once we have that, we never again hear anything directly about Rebecca. She just kind of passes from the scene. Okay? And we only have two references to her after that in Genesis. One of them is here in reference to her nurse, Deborah. And the, second, the last reference we have is late in Genesis when it's described where she was buried. Okay? So then we know by that time she's passed away. And it, but what is interesting here is that the Scripture doesn't tell us when Rebecca died, but it does tell us when Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died. Okay? And it's not like Deborah has played an important part in the story up to this point. Yeah, we, we haven't even hardly heard of her. We, we know she went with Rebecca when Rebecca left uh, Haran and, and went to marry uh, Isaac. We, we know that she was given at that point to, uh, to Rebecca to, to go with her. But, but other than that, she's not played any role in the story. So the question is, why is she mentioned here? Well, I would suggest to you that the reason she's mentioned here is because the, the narrator is trying to tell us something about Rebecca. Is that, is that by mentioning Rebecca, the silence, or excuse me, by mentioning Deborah, the silence about Rebecca becomes deafening. You see that? You know, we wouldn't even probably even have a second thought hardly about Rebecca as we followed the story until we come to this passage and then all of a sudden all these questions come up about Rebecca again. Okay? Why? Well, because Deborah has been mentioned. And, and so, it seems to me that what the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us here is that there has been, in the life of Rebecca, there has been a terrible mistake, a terrible sin that she engaged in, which Jacob also engaged in, 
But for whatever reason, we follow Jacob's story and Jacob plays a, a, a profound role then in the unfolding story of redemption. But Rebecca just fades from the scene. And it's like the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us, I'm not talking about Rebecca. I'm not talking about Rebecca anymore. Okay? And, and yet, He wants us to understand that this is a, a transitional point in the life of Jacob in which we might say Rebecca's influence or the negative aspects of Rebecca's influence in the life of Jacob are now being shed. They're being put away. They're being laid aside. It's this laying aside of the old life so that Jacob can become Israel. And first is the laying aside of the idols and next is the death of Deborah and then finally the death of Rachel and then again, ultimately, of course, the death of Isaac. And it's like Jacob is passing out of this one phase into this new phase and he's passing from being Jacob to becoming Israel. And the thing that strikes me about that as we just kind of carry on this analogy that we've been talking about, about Bethel, is that in, in coming to Bethel, in moving on to a, a deeper, more intimate relationship with Christ, in, in moving on to, to, to have a more profound worship and understanding of God, which we're allowing Bethel to represent in our story, in, in doing that, sometimes there's some painful separations that have to take place. You'll notice that, that they bury Deborah under this oak there at Bethel and they call it what? Excuse me? The oak of weeping. Okay. So it's not, you know, this is not an easy thing for Jacob. This is a painful thing for Jacob. It's not something that he would have chosen. He, you know, of course, we're all going to die eventually. That's a, that's a result of, of the curse. But, but it, it's not a choice that he would have made, but it's just part of the process of coming to Bethel. And in coming to Bethel, in, 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 as, we, as we try to move forward in our spiritual lives, as we try to move forward to Christ into a deeper, more real experience with God, sometimes there are some painful separations that have to occur. Now, I don't want, to, I don't want you to take that too far. It's not like... You know, some people just think, you know, once they become a Christian, they need to go around with a machete and just hack away, you know, and, and alienate everybody in their lives. And that's not the kind of thing we're talking about. But the reality is that sometimes when we want to go to Bethel, other people don't want to go with us. Even sometimes people who are close to us don't want to go with us. And the question is, are we going to make a choice at that point between moving on to Bethel or maintaining those connections that we have learned to cherish. But ultimately, if we're going to move on with God, sometimes there are going to be separations that have to occur. And, and it's, not always, it's not always with people who are detrimental to our life or, or injurious to our life. I've had people who have been tremendous assets and encouragements and benefits to me early in my spiritual life. But as I moved on, those relationships have been set aside in order to be able to develop and cultivate new relationships. Not that I've chosen to separate them, but it's just the normal process of life and moving on in life. That some people who were very instrumental early in my life, I have very little interaction with them now. It's not because I've chosen or they've chosen to draw a line, but God has moved us on. And in, in moving on in our spiritual experience, 
that means there's going to be changes in our relationships and we will develop new relationships that enhance our walk with Christ now and other relationships that serve that purpose earlier may end up being set aside. And it may even involve an oak of weeping. It may even involve a painful separation uh, as we see here in the case of Jacob. Okay. Well, uh, the interesting thing here to me is that, that this separation that occurs in the life of Jacob through the death of Deborah is very similar to what happened in Abraham's experience when he went to Bethel. You remember, after he came back from Egypt, he spends a little bit of time in Negev, but then he returns to Bethel. And when he turns to, returns to Bethel, what's the significant event that happens there before God speaks to him at Bethel? Pardon? No. No, this is, this is much earlier than that. This is uh, many years earlier than that. <clears throat> Hint, this is before Sodom and Gomorrah. Pardon? Well, he gets the covenant a bunch of times and we'll look at that in a minute. Pardon? It's where he splits up with Lot. Yeah. See, there's another separation. It's, it's, it's a separation that takes place with somebody who's close to him, who's dear to him, who's been with him through all of this, who even was willing to leave Haran and go with him to the promised land. And yet he gets to Bethel, and at Bethel, there's this experience of separation that has to occur. Okay. Well, I don't want to belabor that point. It's just, it, 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 I think it's just a point that we need to be aware of in our, in our lives. And like I say, it's not that we go around with a machete trying to sever relationships with people. But just to be aware that as we move on in our relationship with Christ, this experience sometimes is what we will encounter. Well, then we get into the meat of, this, of his experience at Bethel and we get into these uh, these number of repetitions and he has come to Bethel again as Abraham came to Bethel. And that's the first repetition we get is this idea of Abraham and Jacob both returning to Bethel. And and if Bethel can represent to us, as I've suggested, it does this deeper fellowship and walk with God. And we've talked about that ever since we studied the life of Abraham. And if it represents that, then there are some interesting parallels and applications here that I see. One is, once again, as we just mentioned a few minutes ago, when, Abra- when did Abraham come to Bethel? Okay, now we just said this, so this shouldn't take long. Pardon? After Egypt, okay. So Abraham goes to Egypt and he has this disastrous uh, sojourn in Egypt, okay, where he, you know, he lies about his wife and all that stuff. And he ends up, of course, coming out, you know, uh, richer than he ever imagined being. So in that sense, it wasn't disastrous. But in a spiritual sense and in, a, in, a, in an ethical sense, it was a really disastrous adventure. And he comes back from Egypt and ultimately Abraham goes, I need to go back to Bethel. And he goes back to Bethel. And he gets back to Bethel and then he has a separation with Lot. And then right after that, God comes to him and speaks to him there uh, in some very profound and glorious ways. Okay, so so with Abraham, in his experience, he just recognized he needed to go back to Bethel. But with Jacob, when Jacob comes back from Paden Aram, from his sojourn in Paden Aram, he comes back and he goes to Shechem and he gets stuck at Shechem. Okay, and he's there for 10 years. How does he end up going to Bethel then? 
God told him to go to Bethel. Okay. Well, that's kind of instructive to me, too. When you compare Abraham and Jacob here, this whole thing about returning to Bethel, you, you don't have to wait for an invitation. Jake, Abraham just knew, you know, I need, I need to get back to that place where I encountered God. And so he goes back to Bethel. Now, Jacob, he's a little more dense. Okay, so, you know, he needs it explicitly told to him. He needs an explicit invitation, if you will. As I suggested to you last week, it really is a command. God tells him to go. But I think of it more as a call. God is calling him back to Bethel. Okay, and and in some of our lives, you know, we're just so dense. Maybe God needs to call us back to Bethel. Okay, well, my point is, you don't need an invitation. When 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 you've been on a sojourn and and you've been sullied by the world and you recognize that in your life, you can go, I can go back to Bethel. (laughs) But if you don't get to that point yourself, maybe God will come along and give you an invitation. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking, well, you know. Okay, everybody in this class, we've got an invitation, right? Because this is what we've been talking about for the last three weeks, okay? Going back to Bethel, okay? So we've all got our invitation now. It's time to do it. If in in just the course of living our lives and, and walking through our spiritual experience, we found ourselves in desperate need of a renewed fellowship with Christ, a renewed worship of God, a, a, a greater likeness of Him in our lives. If we're finding that our, our reality, this is your invitation. This is my invitation. God is saying to us, this is available for us at Bethel. And God is calling us to that. Well, so... So Abraham returns to Bethel on his own. Jacob comes by invitation, but they both end up back at Bethel and God speaks to them there. So Jacob gets back to Bethel and it says God appeared to him a second time. Well, so here we have another repetition. Okay, God has spoken to Bethel, spoken to Jacob before at Bethel. Remember on his flight uh, from his brother Esau, he heads north to Padanaran. He stops at Bethel. It's just another stop along the road. He has no idea of the significance of the place, but he gets there and God comes to him in a dream and he has this dream and God makes these wonderful promises to him and he wakes up and he says, God was in this place and I did not know it. And he names it Bethel, the house of God. Okay. Well, now God is appearing to him a second time. And we learn something else about Bethel and the things that Bethel represents is that one time in our lives is not enough. Yeah, it's, 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 it's easy for us as Christians when we've had some kind of experience with God that is significant, life-changing, worth remembering. Sometimes we kind of think, well, I've had that and that's all I need and I can go the rest of my life on that. You know, when I was growing up, I don't know if this is real common. I, I think it is. Uh, but when, when I was growing up, I was in a context where I heard this talked about a lot. 
uh, I don't hear it much anymore. It may be just because I'm in a different communion of believers now than I was at that point. But there was a lot of talk. uh, uh, As I grew up, I heard a lot of talk about things called the second blessing. And the idea of the second blessing or the holiness experience was that you got saved, you came to Christ, and that was one big event in your life. And then, and then as you pursued God, eventually, ultimately, you would get this second blessing or you would get this holiness experience, okay? And it was kind of a non-charismatic version of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, okay? It was the idea that at some point in your life, you'd get this kind of second profound experience and you would achieve spiritual victory in your life. So the idea, the idea is you get this kind of, you get this kind of spiritual triumph, and then, then you're really over the struggles. You know, you 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 really you walk in holiness from that point on. You really don't struggle with sin like you did before. Okay. Well, I have two problems with that. One is that it doesn't jive with Scripture, and the second is it doesn't jive with my experience. You know, and. And so, one of the things we learn about Bethel is that it was necessary for Jacob to go back there. And it was necessary for Abraham to go back there. That even though they had been to Bethel once, even though they had heard God speak once, even though in both of their lives these had been life-transforming experiences, once was not enough. And that as they went on in their lives, the junk of life happens. And they stumbled and they struggled and they made mistakes. And there came times when they realized, i got to go back to Bethel. And, and I think that can serve for us as instructive in our lives that, that when we experience great triumph and great victory and great steps forward in our life, we should rejoice in that. We should delight in that. We should thrill in that. But we should never presume that's all we need. That as we go on in life, we're going to have to come back here time and time and time again. Time and time and time again in my life and in your life, we're going to have to come to a point where we realize I'm not experiencing Christ the way I need to be experiencing Christ. I'm not walking with Christ the way I need to be walking with Christ. Now, if I could, I'd like to make a little distinction here. I'm not talking about revival. Okay. I've gotten real gun shy about this word revival. I don't know about you. <laughs> but but I but I've heard that word used so much and I've seen it used so much and you know and I you know I drive through town and I see the signs in front of the churches that say we're going to have a revival next week, you know, and and they set the dates and this is when we're going to revive, you know. And uh and I, and I have to confess to a little skepticism about that. Uh, now, God bless those people, and I hope they do experience revival, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. But, but typically, when we're talking about revival, oftentimes what I see people are really talking about is they're not talking about Bethel, they're talking about Shechem. That revival typically in our modern evangelical society, that revival is usually associated with the things you do at Shechem. You make commitments, you put away the idols, 
It's the things you decide you're not going to do anymore. You confess your sin. That's a necessary portal. That's an important place to go. But it is not the goal. It's just a portal. It's just a way of passage to get to Bethel. And I would suggest to you that for us as Christians, we do need to go through those times of Shechem. But really what God is calling us to is He's calling us to to a focus on Him and His glory and His greatness and His preciousness and, and the worship of Him and the experience of His likeness in our life as we live out our daily lives. And if there is sin in our life, if there are idols in our life, yes, those things have to be turned from. Those things have to be repented from. But that's not where we stop. Yeah. We don't stop there and say, okay, now I've experienced revival because I've repented of my sin. But I've really been revived when I've gotten to Bethel, when I've seen the glory of God, when I've experienced His presence, when I've heard His voice, and I know that I am blessed of Him. So, we have uh, then uh, Jacob's uh, uh, return to Bethel, and we have this second appearance of, of God to to Jacob, and it's very specific, it's very clear that this is some kind of a a material appearance. Okay, he talks about the place. He talks about God coming up from the place. So this is not this is not like his first appearance. In the first appearance, it was a dream. Okay, this is not a dream. God is very clearly present here, just like He was present with Jacob, or excuse me, with Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. Okay, it's God's presence there. It's very real, and there's a strong emphasis. You'll notice in this passage several times the word place is used. There's a strong emphasis on the idea of place. And we've talked about, uh, ever since uh, our first studies in Genesis, clear back in the story of creation, we've talked about the importance of place in Scripture. How much God emphasizes place. And one of the reasons that is so important in Scripture is because God did not create us as just spiritual beings. We're not just spiritual beings floating around in some kind of netherworld. We are physical beings. God created us as physical beings because He wanted physical beings. If he wanted just spiritual beings, he would have just made more angels. He didn't want more angels. He wanted human beings with a physical form which necessitated a physical place. The problem that we have is that because we are physical beings and because we live in a physical place and because we are fallen, that we tend to think that the physical is all there is. But it's not all there is. And so all the way through Scripture, God kind of makes this connection between the physical, material, and the spiritual. Because we really get tuned in when things happen to us physically. Okay? <laughs> when, I, when I smash my finger with a thumb, it pretty much gets my attention. Okay? I'm focused. Okay? I'm, always, I'm not always that focused when it comes to spiritual things. And so God has graciously given us a mechanism by which he ties the material and the physical to the spiritual so that we would be reminded. So God, God ties this profound spiritual experience with Jacob to a physical place. And that then serves as a reminder to Jacob that the spiritual thing that he happened in his life was as real as the physical place that he happened at. So anytime Jacob goes by Bethel or comes to Bethel or thinks about Bethel, he remembers a spiritual experience and that spiritual experience is as real to him 
as the physical thing he encountered. That's why God's given us baptism. That's why he's given us the Lord's Supper. That's why the Lord allows us to have certain places, even physical, geographical places in our life that have profound significance so that, so that we will remember that the spiritual is as real as the physical. Okay? So, so God appears to Jacob here at this place and then he renames Jacob. He says, your name is no longer Jacob, but it's Israel. And I go, excuse me? Any of you have a problem with that? I mean, how many times do you change a guy's name from Jacob to Israel? Okay, He's already done this. He did it at Peniel. He did it there on the north bank of the Jabbok River when Jacob wrestled with God. So why does he do it again? Okay. Pardon? Well, he is still using his other name. And, and in fact, Scripture still uses his other name. Yeah, the narrator does. But the interesting thing is, even after this, he still does. And sometimes he calls him Israel, but sometimes he calls him Jacob. Yeah. Well, I don't know all the answers to that question. But, but the point of God, when he changed his name at Peniel, the point God was making is, Jacob, this is a transforming point in your life. You're going to be a different man after Peniel. You're going to be a different man after wrestling with me. <coughs> and, and if nothing else, I think God is just saying to Jacob, Jacob, here the second time when he does it, remember back that first time? You're a different man. You're a new man, Jacob. Now, sometimes we just need to be reminded of that. We get, we get saved or we have an experience with God and our life has changed, our life is transformed, and then we go on and we live many years and, and in that changed or transformed condition. And sometimes it's easy to forget the cloth we were cut out of, Right? Sometimes it's easy to forget what we were like before we experienced God. And, and so in that sense, sometimes we lose our appreciation for what God has done in our lives. Sometimes we just need to go back and remember what we were like before. <laughs> sometimes we just need to go back and remember my name was Jacob. But now it's Israel. God has changed me. God has transformed me. Now, I haven't been transformed in all the ways I want to be or in all the ways that I need to be, but I'm not the same guy I was 20 or 30 or 40 years ago, and I hope you aren't either. And if that's true, sometimes it's helpful to go back and just remember that. So I don't know all the reasons why God repeats this process here, but I think that's one thing that's going on. I think God is saying to Jacob, Jacob, remember, I've changed you. You're a different man. And I think in part two, it's been 10 years since Peniel, and, and perhaps he just needs to be uh, just refreshed in this. <laughs> it needs to be put back. Things need to be put back in perspective for him. Okay. Well, then God says to him, he says, I'm going to multiply you. He says, I am God Almighty. That's El Shaddai. It's the same term he used with Abraham when he gives Abraham essentially the same promise. He says, I am El Shaddai. I'm the Almighty God. Be fruitful and multiply. 
And, and then he just and elaborates on this covenant promise. Well, it's very easy for us to slide over that covenant promise because we've heard it and read it so many times before. Let me just give you a, just a brief reminder here. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God gives the covenant promise to Abraham and Haran. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God gives a, form, a portion of the covenant promise to Abraham at Shechem. Genesis chapter 12, verses 14 through 17, God gives the covenant promise to Abraham at Bethel. Genesis chapter 15, verses uh, 5 through 7, actually that whole chapter after the War of the Kings, God comes to Abraham, speaks to Abraham, and gives him the blessings. And that's the whole thing about the passing between the carcasses and that whole chapter and all the covenant uh, promises that are made in that chapter. In Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 6, and much of the rest of the chapter is the institution of the circumcision. And God is once again restating the covenant promises. In Genesis chapter 18, Verse 10, at the Oaks of Mamre, before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, God gives the promise that he gives to Abraham, the covenant promises again. He's just saying these things over and over and over again. In Genesis chapter 22, in verses 16 through 18, at Mount Moriah, after he is offered, being willing to offer Isaac his son on the altar, God once again gives him the covenant promises. In Genesis chapter 25, in verse 23, God gives the covenant promises to Rebekah. In Genesis chapter 26, in verses 2 through 5, God gives the covenant promises to Isaac at Gerar. In Genesis chapter 26, verse 24, God gives the covenant promises to Isaac at Beersheba. In Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, God gives the covenant promises to Jacob at Bethel. Here in this passage that we're looking at today, uh, God gives his <clears throat> promises to Jacob again at Bethel. And then in Genesis chapter 46, in verses 2 through 9, God gives his covenant promises again to Jacob at Beersheba as he's leaving for Egypt. That's 13 times I can count. 12 of which we've studied so far in our study of Genesis. 13 times that God has said, I'm going to multiply your descendants like the sand of the sea and I'm going to give you this land as your inheritance. And by now, when we read it, we just go, yeah, we've read that before. i read that before. In fact, I've read it 12 times before already. I'm going to read it another time before I'm done with Genesis. What's the point? It's significant, folks. It's significant. Pardon me if I get a little too contemporary or maybe even a little too political here. But I don't care what the President of the United States says. The land is Israel's. He's serious about this. He has made a covenant promise. Now, I know there are Christians, there are wonderful Christians, and pe- people who love the Lord, who think, who somehow allegorize the promise now, or think that, that God, you know, it's a, it's a spiritual thing now. It's no longer a physical thing. <clears throat> but I'm sorry, I've just been laboring through Genesis now for two years and I keep running up against this promise of God is going to give this land to Israel and I just can't get around it. It's a covenant promise made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and it's made unconditionally. And it may be uncomfortable to us. We may not understand it. 
It may make us squirm politically or socially. But it's this whole thing about place. And I don't know why the land of Israel is so important to God. And I don't know why it's so important that the children of Israel have that land. But it, but I just can't get around the fact that God has said it, and, and Genesis is only the beginning of the story. God has said it over and over and over and over again. But, it, but that's just the land part of the promise. What about the descendant part of the promise? He's made that promise to his descendants and, and I know they sinned and I've known they rebelled and I know they're under God's punishment at this point. But Romans chapter 9, 10, 11 is clear, is it not? That, that they have been, they've been cut off for a while, but they're going to be grafted back in. Why? Because God has made an irrevocable, unconditional promise to three old saints clear back there in the book of Genesis. And I think God keeps his word. And I think he's serious about it. And if he isn't serious about it, why did he say it 13 times in one book? Now, clearly, the descendants of Abraham are not only the physical descendants, but they are also the spiritual descendants. And Romans makes that clear. And thankfully, I get to be a part of that and you get to be a part of all that. And so I can rest assured. I can I can I can I can get great comfort and great pleasure out of just the knowledge that God is faithful. And what God is trying to say here in this passage, as he's been saying all the way through since chapter 12, is I take this thing seriously. I take my promises seriously and I'm going to do this. I told your granddad I was going to do this. I told your dad I was going to do this. And I'm telling you I'm going to do this. And for the children of Israel in the wilderness reading this story for the first time as Moses transcribes uh, the book of Genesis for them or, or pens the book of Genesis for them to read as they read this the first time, it's this tremendous encouragement to them that God is at work in their lives and God is accomplishing His purposes. And whatever man does and whatever Satan throws at us, God will prevail. God has taken this seriously and He's made a commitment to it and He's going to do it. Well, we're out of time and I, and I do want to talk a little bit about the last part about this, the things that Jacob does. So we'll talk about that next week as we go on into the last part of the chapter. Okay? Thank you. I do have a handout for next week.